Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Jack Hodgins. Today we'll be discussing the mental health impacts of climate change. We are joined by Dr. Robert Llewellyn-Jones, who is a Sydney-based consultant psychiatrist with over 20 years of experience. Dr. Llewellyn-Jones is also a member of Doctors for the Environment and is here to shed some light on the topic. Hello, Robert, and welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Climate change is going to affect all aspects of life. One of these aspects we don't hear enough about is the mental health effects it will have on us. So, Robert, what impact psychologically is climate change going to have on our mental health and what kind of emotions are we going to be dealing with? Well, I guess that the, the first thing to say is that as we, I think, increasingly are aware that climate change is not something in the distant future. It's already here. And as doctors, we're already seeing the deadly effects when we're treating the casualties of extreme heat waves and floods and bushfires. And in my case and the case of psychiatrists and other mental health professionals, we're seeing today the adverse impact on people's mental health. A lot of my younger patients are increasingly fearful about their future. They worry about having kids, whether they... Some will say to me, I just don't think... the the world's going to be a fit place to bring kids into, and that's a huge issue for them. The other issue that we're aware of is as the climate gets hotter, there's an increase in emergency mental health presentations and hospitalisations. Obviously, we've also got the situation where if you're exposed directly to a climate-related disaster, you've got a great chance of getting depressed, anxious, and having post-traumatic stress disorder. Even being exposed to hearing about other people um, exposed to disasters can cause depression and anxiety. I think you know, I well remember during our Black Summer 2019-2020, you know, just the images on TV, the smoke that blanketed Sydney and other areas up and down the coast of New South Wales it, you know, really deeply affected me thinking about, you know, how people were coping, how they're being affected by the fires and also the destruction of native species and animals and habitat. It, it really can cause a lot of distress for people. I think you raised a very good point too when you mentioned that well, the way we think about it, we, we sometimes think, oh, it's, 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 it's a little far away, you know, but you mentioned that it was, it's here. It, it's right here, and we saw that in the, as you mentioned, the 2019-2020 fires. Yeah, and, and, and also the, uh, the recent United Nations report on climate change, the, the most sort of important report in seven or eight years, came out on last Monday, and it really does paint a uh, grim picture. And But that said, I think it's really important uh, to realise that whilst, you know, time's rapidly running out, it hasn't run out and we can still avert the catastrophe. Human-induced climate change is accelerating and the data, the scientific data, shows that temperatures are rising faster than at any time in at least the last 2,000 years. The amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is higher than it's been for 2 million years. You know, extreme weather events are increasing. We see it you know, every week, every month, uh, in some part of the globe, people are having to deal with extreme weather events that are happening far more frequently than they ever have. 
and in fact, far more severely than they ever have. Let's talk about your story for a moment. What was the journey you went through to get to where you are today? Well, I think it, for me, it all began with uh, a documentary that was in the early 2000s called The in- An Inconvenient Truth. And so I think that's what really started me being concerned about it. But I think like a lot of people, I thought, well, our leaders are going to, you know, they're going to realize there's this uh, disaster on the horizon and they're going to they're going to do something about it. And so whilst in my personal life and family life, I sort of did what I could in terms of looking after the environment. And I think we've all been doing this, recycling, being part of various conservation groups, getting out into nature and really trying to appreciate it for the you know, absolute amazingness of what it is. I, um, I wasn't uh, at that point in the early 2000s an activist. And as the years have gone on, the other uh, person I think who has had a huge influence on me personally is David Attenborough. The documentaries that he has put out, particularly in the last 20 years, these documentaries that have shown just how amazing uh, life is on the planet. And I think that came with a growing realisation. We're all interdependent. My realisation has been that, you know, for the last 10,000 years, uh, or maybe slightly more, humans have evolved to a point of enormous technological sophistication. But alongside that has come this idea, this notion, that nature is something to be controlled, exploited, um, used for human benefit in the pursuit of uh, growth. And as I've kind of reflected on this over the years, it seems as if there's this notion that growth is absolutely sort of limitless. We can just keep on growing and we'll always have some way to fix any side effects. But as uh, the climate science has become more and more accurate, more and more convincing, it's clear that it will certainly become clear to me that we can't keep growing that, in fact, we have to learn to be guardians of life on the planet and not exploiters of life on the planet in the pursuit of growth. Under the worst-case scenario, if we don't act now, and I mean now, urgently, we're going to become extinct. And, you know, nature will survive in some form in an extremely different planet, but humans simply won't. And I have a 13-year-old daughter, and um, I guess as I've seen her grow up, it's been a source of enormous sadness to me to think that my daughter and her children and their children, maybe they, the whole human species won't be around, and the planet that I have had the opportunity to travel around and the nature that I've had the opportunity to be amongst and the amazingly beautiful places on the planet that I've had the opportunity to visit won't be there anymore. And uh, I think that has really deeply affected me and made me feel that I've got to do everything I can for as long as I live to try and be part of the solution to stop this uh, dreadful impact, the horrific impact that climate change will have on the planet if we don't act now. 
And I think you raised a very good point there when you said that with growth, we, we're we so focused on, on whether it's economical growth or what have you, but we're so focused on that and we don't take into account the the long-term effect that that's having on the planet. It seems like we need to change our thinking to how we go about life as we know it. Oh, absolutely. That's uh, many of my patients, and and I'm sure I've probably said it myself, um, and my friends have said it. Oh gosh, um, I just can't wait for life to get back to normal after COVID. And I guess for me, as the climate activist, life can't go back to so-called normal after COVID, because if life goes back to the way it was with um, people in leadership positions denying the need for urgent action on climate change, if our society keeps going um, with pursuing limitless growth and, as you say, simply just focusing on the profit bottom line, then we're going to destroy the planet. So it does mean that there, I think there has to be a major shift in the in the way that we view um, human life and and the way we view the way societies should be functioning. What you know? What are the goals? What are the ambitions for for us as humans on the planet? And I think we could also view it as an opportunity to maybe look at the world and go. Well, what? Do, how do we want to change this? Because, I mean, that's basically what we've got here. We've got an opportunity to direct where the change goes. And perhaps we should look at climate change as op- like that there's change and opportunity for a better world. I, I mean, I, I really agree with that. Um, and I think it, it, it's also we've got to look broadly. Mm. It's not just, you know, we, obviously we've got to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. But we've also got to look broadly at the other aspects of uh, the environmental catastrophe that could develop. And one of those is the loss of biodiversity. And we, we can't keep destroying wild habitats um, because those wild habitats are essential for the biodiversity that keeps the planet alive. The uh, climate emergency is a symptom of a a wider environmental catastrophe happening on the planet, and we have to address all elements of that catastrophe. And it seems to me, too, that we also, as you highlighted there, that it's we need to look at it broadly because we need to look at the whole picture of all the little parts that fit together and all the different... um, you know, it's not not just a psych- psychology. It's not just you know economics. It's not just politics. It's everything and all the people that are involved in it. And we need to look at look at it quite broadly. Yeah, we do need to look at it broadly. But I, you know, I guess one thing that keeps me going is I feel very optimistic that we've got that we can address it. We we can mm. we can make the change. You know, I guess some people might think, well, look, I'm I'm just one of uh, eight thousand million humans on the planet, and anything that I do as an indiv- a single individual, you know, what, what sort of difference is it going to make? I guess I think of COVID. When you look at COVID, hundreds, thousands, millions, hundreds of millions, thousands of millions individual actions have 
made an enormous difference to the outcome with COVID. You know, with mask wearing or hand hygiene, following the you know the various lockdown rules, and it's not just us in Australia, but all over the globe. Millions and millions of people have been taking individual actions that have been aimed at caring and looking after other humans. So I've got enormous hope that with the COVID pandemic has shown that humanity is able, when the crunch comes, humanity is able to make the right choices and to take um, sufficient actions to avert catastrophes. Now, of course, things are never perfect, and it's not going to be a sudden change where everyone starts doing the right thing or every country does the right thing by the climate. But I've got absolute, my absolute deep conviction that on balance we'll be able to, as humanity, we'll be able to rise to the challenge. And I think we've got to remain, you know, deeply optimistic about that. A thought that comes to to my mind, or rather a phrase, is necessity is the mother of invention, and it seems like it's that's kind of what what has driven that as well. And it seems and it seems that climate change is now that necessity that's going to be the mother of invention. Yeah, I think that's a really great point because one thing that gives me a lot of hope is that all the technological solutions that we need to address climate change already exist. It's not like it's not like we don't know what we need what needs to be done or don't have the technology to do it. We do. You know, renewable renewable energy sources are now very, very cost effective. More cost effective than fossil fuel technologies. All it all we lack and certainly in Australia, I think, is the political will to make those renewable energy resources the mainstay of our energy system. And I think the other thing about COVID is that what COVID has shown is is if you follow the science, you protect your population. And after all, that's what our leaders are elected for, to help keep the population as healthy and as well and as in a good as economic shape as possible. We need to make sure that that's the priority. The priority of the leaders is fulfilling that obligation to the community and to the electorate. As a doctor, I think about but the fact that in the space of 12 months, science was able to create effective vaccines that offer enormous protection against COVID when you know, they did that in less than 12 months, whereas the usual time frame would be, you know, many years to, to achieve that success. One thing I'd say, too, is, you know, we don't want our government to make the mistake that they made with the COVID vaccination with the climate change. Mm-hmm. What I'm talking about here is government sort of had a bit of a stroll out with the vaccination was, you know, they said, oh, look, it's not a race and they've got plenty of time. And as it turned out, they're now playing catch-up because now it is a race and now we don't have the time and people's health and well-being uh, in the outbreaks across the country, their economic well-being as well as their physical well-being is being affected. And what we don't want is the government to be in the state 
as the current government is in this sort of denial. They keep telling us they're doing everything that they need to do to address climate change and their goals for emissions reductions are quite adequate. When this recent United Nations report makes very clear that we have to be far, far, far more active in reducing emissions. If we don't act in the next 10 years, we could reach a point where the changes in the climate is irreversible and we won't be able to make up the lost ground. You're listening to Wellbeing, where we are discussing climate change's effect on our mental health. My guest today is Dr Robert Llewellyn-Jones. I really like how you highlighted the importance of the science. There's been this phenomenon in mostly Western society, I'd say, where a large amount of the population which are questioning uh, scientific evidence and that's kind of created this divide where on one side of the spectrum you have school kids marching in support of climate action and on the other side you have people claiming it's all a hoax. Uh, Climate change is a hoax created by China. What in psychological literature can explain these diverse reactions by people towards climate change? Uh, well, you want the short or the long answer, James? I'm fine with the long answer. I'm just giving you my personal reflections, and I'm sure others would have their own reflections. I often reflect on how we are as, as human animals, as how our nervous systems are, what they're there for. And the way my reflection on it... Basically, our nervous system is, through a huge amount of time of evolution, designed to keep us safe, particularly when we lived, when there were a lot of uh, threats in our environment uh, from other animals, maybe, and we were living in small tribes. As humans, our nervous system was there to help us scan for any danger in the environment. And if we were about to be attacked by a wild beast, to either run like mad, is the flea response, or to fight like crazy, which is the fight response, in order to survive. And that, that sort of fight and flight response is hardwired into humans' nervous system. The other thing that's hardwired into our nervous system is the ability to connect with other humans. And the reason that we have that connectedness part is because uh, it takes a long time for a human uh, to mature enough to be able to fend for itself. So you're looking at, you know, 10 to 20 years where you've got to be um, cared for by other people, depending, of course, on how technologically complex your society is. I guess another thing in our evolution is that we're not the fastest creature on the planet. We're not the strongest creature on the planet. We're not the biggest creature on the planet. What we do have is the most complex computer inside our skull, our brain, that allows us to think ahead, to problem solve and anticipate uh, dangers that might be presented to us which is why we've become the dominant species on the planet. Other animals don't have as complicated a a brain as we do. Even though we have that huge intellect that allows us, as a human species, to create the absolute lyrical beauty of the language of Shakespeare, music of Beethoven, the rhythm of rap, or any other amazing feature of 
culture. So even though we've we've got that ability, our basic fight flight survival mechanisms are incredibly powerful. So that if a human is attacked, they don't start thinking of their most favorite pop song. They're either going to fight like crazy or run like mad, and that is a automatic response. So let me throw this back to climate change for a moment. Mm. Climate change is experienced by our nervous systems as a threat, and with the dire predictions, a very overwhelming threat, because it could kill us, mm. and it could wipe out our kids and grandkids and the whole human species. You ask why there's such different reactions? Well... Let me try and draw the threads together. So faced with this huge potential threat, some people are going to react with fight. So they're going to potentially feel over... Their nervous system will feel overwhelmed and they, they might get aggressive. Maybe they feel so overwhelmed by it, they don't want to believe it. So then they get very aggressive, sort of fighting against it and fighting against the science because it's very... It's a very... Uh, unpalatable uh, and truth that people just simply don't want to know about. Other people might get so overwhelmed that they just put their head in the sand, sort of, sort of mentally run away from it and go into denial. In fact, one of my uh, older patients said to me the other day that they're stopped. Whenever they come across something in the media about climate change, they switch it off or they stop reading. They just go into avoidance because it's just too overwhelming, too upsetting. So I think that's one reason you get um, such divergent views, because it is, it's potentially so completely overwhelming. And I think what we've got to move to is a point where rather than reacting from our sort of basic fight-flight type of responses, we need to be sort of reacting from a, a wise mind place where we're able to think using that enormous brain power that humans have been blessed to uh, have, to find cooperative, and I must really emphasize this, to find cooperative solutions rather than um, to sort of fighting over, over it. Um, well, I guess in a, a sort of competitive way. I think that's one of the issues that... Um, Certainly climate attitudes in this country and in different countries have been plagued by different groups polit politicising uh, the science and weaponising climate change for their own political advantage. We've got to move beyond that. It's mm. just too important. It sounds like to me that we, we shouldn't react, but rather we should respond to the problem. Is that... Would you use that kind of terminology? That's an excellent uh, choice of word. Too much of what's happened in the past has been uh, uh, reaction, um, almost sort of reflexively reacting. And I think what we've got to move to is taking a sort of broad, considered, reflective response uh, view um, rather than reacting based on uh, personal prejudices. And I think as a climate activist, it does, I'm just going to speak personally, it, it means I, tr I try to reach out to people who might be 
opposing what I think needs to be done to, to save the planet. Because I don't think it's helpful if I sort of react to opponents of climate action in that sort of fight-flight way, because that's just going to add to the problem. So whilst I might feel uh, annoyed or frustrated that people aren't taking the action that I w wish they would, I'm speaking here mainly about political leaders, I don't think it's helpful to uh, end up in a sort of verbal fight over things because that is simply going to promote uh, a dysregulation of the opponent's nervous system so they may then get entrenched in their position and respond with a fight response as well. And you don't solve problems by fighting over them. What would be the take-home from this interview you'd want people to remember the most? The biggest thing I want people to remember is this. Every degree matters. Every choice we make matters. I might even say that every fraction of a degree matters. Every year matters. We're the guardian of this amazing, intricate web of life on our planet. Possibly it is the only web of life in existence like this in the entire universe. And our very existence as humans depends on this web of life that we need to look after. And we have the resources and technology to restore the planet to health. And we can't afford to waste any time. And each of us can make a difference as individuals. And our governments can make a difference by taking action to reduce emissions and to reduce the loss of biodiversity. I'd like people to take away a very optimistic message that if we start doing the right thing now, then we're going to meet the crisis. I mean, there was a survey published just very recently that said Australians are three times more likely to be concerned about climate change than they are about COVID. I mean, people are uh, obviously concerned about COVID, but they're more concerned uh, about climate change. The final thing that I'd like to say is about kids and young people, that we need to be listening and we need to be jointly mobilising with our young people and expressing optimism about humanity's future. And my final message, I guess, which is more something to the politicians, we've got to cut our emissions by 75% by 2030. Currently, they're talking about 26 to 28%. If they don't help Australia cut its emissions, they're going to be failing. They're going to be failing us, and they're going to be failing our kids and our grandkids. Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us today, Robert. We appreciate you taking the time. Look, it's absolutely my pleasure. Anything I can do to be helpful. My guest today was Dr. Robert Llewellyn-Jones, an experienced consultant psychiatrist and member of Doctors for the Environment. Thank you for listening. I'm Jack Hodgins, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.